0: By the early republic, there was a concerted effort to shape what it meant to be an American and what had once been sort of an embarrassment, sort of like a rugged, simple, plain kind of eating, became a badge of pride and an emblem of democracy. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The
1: Zest, citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Here at The Pod, we love exploring Florida history through the lens of food. Today, we're zooming out and learning about the role food played in shaping the history of the United States.
0: Thank you for eating up the latest episode of The Zest. WUSF Public Media also offers a delicious podcast focused on arts and culture in the Sunshine State. The Arts Access Florida podcast highlights arts and cultural organizations right here in Florida. Learn more about these unique institutions, how you can be a part of upcoming events, and so much more. For a culturally enriching experience, subscribe to the Arts Access Florida podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or visit artsaccessflorida.org. That's artsaccessflorida.org. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Community Foundation Tampa Bay. Whether you're a
1: history buff or you still have nightmares about your 10th grade Western Civ class, tell me I'm not alone... I think you'll find today's episode so interesting. We've invited two experts to share what we can learn about U.S. history by looking at food. Drs. Cassie Yakovasi and Julia Irwin teach history at the University of South Florida. In this conversation, they share how food helped early Americans shape the country's identity, the role food played during wartime, and what food can tell us about America's labor force. We'll also learn the origin of Meatless Monday, why canned food is underrated, and which food gets their vote for the most American of all. Dr. Yakavazi speaks first.
0: When we think of foodways in early America, we can, I think, categorize them into three groups. So one would be a British influence, one would be a Native American influence, and one would be how Americans were starting to think of themselves to be and how they wanted to shape their own identity as distinctly American in the new nation. So with the British influence, you see lots of pies, cakes, stews, biscuits, preserves. A popular cake, if you could afford it because it required a lot of butter, was Queen's cake, also required a lot of sugar. But you also had a Native American influence really from the very beginning, so like from the colonial era, And part of that was by default, a lot of the colonists and early settlers couldn't afford to satisfy some of their British tastes. And so they turned sometimes reluctantly to corn and cornmeal, which they thought was sort of below them. But then it soon became a staple of of lots of dishes and quite beloved. So as early as the colonial era colonists started turning to cornmeal and some of their breads where they would initially use wheat, but if they couldn't afford wheat or if a harvest went bad, they started using rye and maize flour. And this became a popular kind of bread that was referred to as rye and engine bread. And this is a combination of rye and Indian, and it's not exactly the most PC name, but it became a staple bread. And, and we see this in a lot of early cookbooks. Another example of uh, the native influence is the pancake, and there were a lot of different versions of the pancake, and it was one of the earliest distinctly American foods. It dates also back to the colonial era, and it was very basic in the same way that pancakes are are basic today, and it included cornmeal or Indian meals. It was sometimes called milk, eggs, and sometimes molasses if you could afford it. And it went by lots of different names as well. So you have Johnny Cakes, Ash Cakes, Corn Cake, hoe Cake, Shawnee Cake. And some of these names are a bit of a mystery in terms of their origin. Johnny Cake likely refers to the idea of journey. This is maybe a shortened version of the word journey because you could take this with you on the go as you're on your journey. You could easily make this or pack it and it would keep. Settlers of New England learned how to make these cakes from Indians who showed many of the starving pilgrims how to grind corn for eating. And just because it was so simple, it just sort of lent itself to the lifestyle of some of the settlers that was pretty rugged. And that actually leads me to my third point about this, is that a lot of the foodways in the early republic reflected how Americans were thinking about themselves and how they wanted to shape their identity. And initially in the colonial era, a lot of the colonists wanted to be British. They wanted to dress like the British, have British manners, and this included how they ate. But by the early Republic, there was a concerted effort to shape what it meant to be an American and what had once been sort of an embarrassment, sort of like a rugged, simple, plain kind of eating, became a badge of pride. And an emblem of democracy, so plain eating, simple eating, eating of cheap foods was something that Americans took pride in, and their food, you know, was very much a part of this. The pancake is a great example of that. Also, uh, pudding that was popular at the time called hasty pudding was an example of this, and um, this pudding wasn't exactly that delicious, but it was easy to make, and it was cheap, and so you you get a lot of that in the early republic in terms of who did the cooking it was mostly women but there wasn't necessarily at least in the early republic a strict separation of home and work life so you had home gardens there was a lot of hunting there was sort of a communal effort in some of the food ways and even if some of the cooking or more of the cooking was done by women, it wasn't necessarily the woman of the household. You have indentured servants, domestics, of course, enslaved people. And so there was sort of a class division in terms of who did the cooking. Another important thing to understand about the early Republic is that it also wasn't just about tiers in terms of the differences and how people ate, but it was also about region. So in the Northeast, food was more bland and simple, kind of reflecting what I have just been talking about. But in the South, a place that we might not associate today with the most sophisticated culinary traditions, that's where you had the most sophisticated, the the most tasty kinds of foods. And the reasons for that was slavery. For one, you had enslaved labor to cook for you. And a lot of those who were enslaved brought African traditions with them, brought a variety of spices, a variety of ways of cooking meats and and using different spices. Also, there was a longer growing season in the South that lent itself to having more fruits and vegetables. And there was more wealth in the South, at least among wealthy planters. And so they could import a lot of different kinds of foods that you weren't necessarily getting in the Northeast or the Mid-Atlantic.
1: Well, that was a whole mouthful right there. So much good <laughs> stuff. I just love hearing about this. Julia, let's fast forward. And Cassie talked about gardens. A lot of us think of, you know, World War II, the Victory Gardens. But even prior to that, how did World War I change Americans' eating habits?
2: Yeah, World War One. Um there was there was a slogan during World War One that a lot of yeah. you know that became very common in, in the US that was food will win the war. And it really reflected this kind of important belief that food needed to be saved and sent abroad for both Allied soldiers initially and later after the United States enters the war in 1917 for American soldiers as well as for civilians. So there's a sort of you know many, many sort of hungry civilians and refugees in the war. So this idea of saving food as being important to helping win the war is a really important one. And it shapes how Americans eat. So Herbert Hoover, who would later become president, made a name for himself in World War I, first by organizing food relief for um, Belgian children mostly in, in occupied Belgium. But then later he became, after the United States entered the war, he was named the Food Administrator. And he was really, he became really a sort of leading force in calling people to preserve and, and save and conserve food. So we think today in 2022 about you know, people cutting down on meat, especially. So Hoover coined the term meatless Mondays and this idea of, of saving meat, mostly, again, for, for soldiers with this assumption that you know, strong fighting men needed meat to remain strong. Uh, but meatless Mondays, wheatless Wednesdays as a way to kind of save wheat for the war effort, too. And it really called on American, again, housewives especially, but the people doing most of the cooking to take part in the war effort by saving food themselves. So looking for alternate recipes uh, that would use corn instead of wheat or beans and legumes and peanuts instead of meat. Often they were also called on to use fish instead of meat. Um, So kind of different ideas about what constituted meat at least, but sort of fish being more plentiful. In terms of gardens too, there was a major effort, essentially with many men off to war as soldiers, women being called in to do the work on farms. Uh, so there's a sort of a, the Women's Land Army, that's what it was called, um, and sort of women volunteers who went out to the, the countryside to serve the nation's farms and really keep food going. So it was a really major part of, of the war effort more generally.
1: Wow. Oh my gosh. I, do you guys remember those American Girl books? Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> Love those. those. <laughs>
1: There was a character, Molly, who was like a World War II era girl and they had their garden and everything. So that's what this is all making me think of. This is so cool. (laughs) So, Julia, you talked about foreign aid and meatless Mondays, which I didn't realize Herbert Hoover had coined that term. (laughs) But what about more modern war Aid. You know, yeah. I'm thinking about the situation in Ukraine. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, people who were in Vietnam and mm-hmm. even World War II are are still alive today, some mm-hmm. of them. So what did aid look like then? And and maybe what does it look like today?
2: Essentially, in the aftermath of World War II, the United States had an abundance of agricultural products, like too much. There were big surpluses. And it was actually becoming an embarrassment. There was so much food that it was being destroyed, essentially, or kind of left to rot. So one of the first food aid programs that kind of comes out of this period is a sense that like the U.S. government can buy up these surpluses and use them as food aid comes out of really the post-World War II period in 1954, the first major legislation um, that would later become known as food for peace. So the origins of U.S. food assistance start in the 1940s and 50s with this food for peace program um, that continued uh, for much of the 20th century um, the U.S. government, as well as NGOs that it partnered with providing food and food assistance to other nations, sometimes in the form of sales, other times as gifts, and sometimes also donating to international organizations. So among the more important ones are, are the World Food program Program, which actually won the Nobel Prize, uh, I think, last year, either last year or the year before. But the U.S. is a major donor to groups like the World Food Program that are participating in uh, you know, food relief in Ukraine right now. Um, there's a longstanding famine in Yemen where food has been an important part of that. So one of the things I look at in my work a lot is kind of thinking about what is this food aid for? Um, obviously, for a lot of people, that, that there is real humanitarian need and, and kind of trying to help hungry people throughout the world. But there's always also been a kind of political and diplomatic side of this. There's a term winning hearts and minds, um, but a lot of policymakers talk about winning hearts, minds and stomachs. So making sure that both allies and and potential enemies are are well fed is is, is seen as a really important part of international relations, too.
1: If someone wanted to help in Ukraine or any other part of the world, or even in the United States, for that matter, Mm -hmm. is it a good idea to send food or should we be sending money? What's the best way Mm -hmm. to help?
2: So, you know, I'm, I'm a historian on the charities. Most people do talk about these things and sending money is the best of all. Because a lot of times, you know, there's this sort of sense I and mean, people want to help by doing practical things like I want to donate cans and foods. And a lot of times those foods aren't necessarily needed or desired, sometimes especially with foreign aid, well-meaning people sending food that isn't really relevant to what, you know, it's not the kind of food that people know how to cook or are used to or accustomed to. It costs a lot of money to ship all that food abroad, <laughs> um, whether it's on ships or on planes, that, that's. It's all expensive. So if you're actually just using that money to buy things more locally, most people involved in, in NGOs today say that donating money is really the, the better way to go if you want to help.
1: That's great. And thank you. I know this isn't, you know, your wheelhouse, but thank you for letting me. (laughs) I read enough
2: about it. So yeah,
1: I, Yeah. I, I read a little bit too. So thank you for letting me put you on the spot. I want to ask both of you and Cassie, I'll start with you. There's so much interesting research. I just want to like, like be a fly on the wall in your classroom, but Cassie, what's maybe a surprising bit of research that you've come across?
0: One surprising bit of research that I didn't know about, but I I shouldn't have been surprised of, is the major influence of formerly enslaved Black women on our culinary traditions. So a lot of freed men and women after the Civil War, and especially after Reconstruction, moved north, and they brought their food traditions with them and really shaped some of the the food traditions of the nation. One example of this is a freed woman named Abby Fisher, who had worked as a slave in the South as a cook, and she moved to San Francisco in the 1880s. She got a job as a cook, and she soon gained a reputation as being a really great cook. And this launched her career into opening her own restaurant. She wrote a cookbook, and she was illiterate, so this cookbook was uh, dictated. And it's called What Mrs. Abby Fisher Knows About Old Southern Cooking. And it was full of all of these old Southern traditions, including pies and cakes and stew, sort of traditional recipes, but also croquettes and gumbos and other Creole dishes and special sauces. And this was a a common thing throughout the states. In fact, one historian in the 19-teens noticing this said the professional cooks of the country were Negroes and the national cookery came from them. And so just learning about that influence, I think, is something that, again, is not necessarily surprising, but not that well-known.
1: Oh, I love that. Last season, we had on Tony Tipton Martin. She's a James Beard award-winning cookbook author, and she talks about a lot of what you just said. But Julia, I want to ask you the same question. What's the mm-hmm. surprising bit of research that you've come
2: across? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that surprises me most um, or, or that I like to sort of surprise students with is to tell them about how exciting canned food was. There's a great book. There's a woman named Anna Zida who just published this book. We, we think of canned food now as like the worst possible food. When canned food first came out, canning food um, on an industrial scale, at least, started happening really during the Civil War and then especially afterwards. To people who lived in the 19th century, the ability to eat peaches in winter, uh, if you lived in New England, or, or any fruit, right? Peaches, strawberries, any of these things. and Otherwise, you would have had to can and preserve them yourself. Which is a laborious process if you've ever canned anything. If you jump forward later um, into the 20th century, things like frozen foods and and even TV dinners. Um, just thinking about the amount of labor it cuts down on if you're if you're a sort of busy you know often you know either a domestic servant or an enslaved person or or a everyday housewife cooking food. Hours and hours just spent shopping, preparing, growing, preserving for the winter food. All of these things just take so much time. And so the, the sort of convenience associated with these things made people just really excited in ways. So it's really, you know, as we move in the 21st century to a return to like sort of more natural things, whole grains, you know, farmers markets where we can kind of do these things, growing our own food. It seems funny to think that. But when you realize just how much labor it saved, like I, I really like kind of telling that story in my classes.
1: Okay, you kind of sold me on it. At first, I was giving you the side (laughs) eye, like canned food. But then I remembered an interview that I had done a few years ago at Cracker Country, where they said that apple pie would not have been on the holiday table until the train was able to bring canned apples from, you know, Washington Mm -hmm. or Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, you know, American as apple pie, but not everyone even had apples from the beginning of America. (laughs) A lot of the conveniences that you're talking about would have benefited women in particular, because as Cassie said, women were the ones doing a lot of the cooking. And I love we're three females having this conversation. Cassie, these days we tell our kids they can be anything. And yet I still want my daughter and my son to know how to cook. Why is it important to preserve this history that is in a way, you know, the history of American women?
0: Well, women have had a huge influence on food history and Food history is history. I mean, we can understand so much about history through the lens of food. And, and there's just an undeniable influence of women on this. And a couple examples, going back to the early Republic, you had a just proliferation of women publishing cookbooks. And there were certain venues through which they could publish that was considered acceptable. And one was writing sentimental novels um, or Edifying literature and, and, and another uh, venue was cookbooks. And in a lot of these cookbooks by Catherine Beecher or Sarah Josepha Hale and others, they believed that they were not only shaping American food habits by publishing certain recipes and giving advice, but also shaping national character. So in promoting frugality and simple foods and being resourceful, they believed they were also reinforcing like what it meant to be a good citizen. And a lot of these cookbooks had a enormous influence on how people ate for better or worse. <laughs> and another example of that is, is Thanksgiving. So Sarah Josepha Hale had promoted Thanksgiving as a national holiday decades before it became one and used her own cookbook and her ladies' magazine to promote recipes and menus and descriptions as she understood the historical tradition. And she wrote to many presidents to petition for this holiday. And it was Abraham Lincoln who finally, in 1863 during the war, said, yes, this is a great idea. But she argued that it would bring national unity. And so there's just, a, a, I think, a great influence of women on American history through food that um, is, is important to know about.
1: You're teaching me something every time you open your mouth. And Julia, so are you. Is there anything you wanted to add to that? You
2: no, know, I think the history of food is also, it's it's a history, a way to look at labor and work in this country, right? As, as the United States shifted from becoming Predominantly an agricultural society to an industrial society um, that changed, you know, a lot of the ways that people labor in this country. So thinking about just sort of the history of, of working people, right, men and women, the people who worked growing food, um, transporting food, you know, kind of creating food later, who would work in factories and then now in sort of you know in fast food and in restaurants and sort of the hospitality sector is, is such an important part of our economy now. Food work is is just really, you know, whether it's at home or in the world more broadly, food work is a really just. It tells us so much about how the economy of the United States has, has always functions. Cassie started saying this, you know, food history is everything. We all eat every day. It is something we cannot escape. So I think that it really tells, you know, it's a way to kind of get at every sort of sector of, of society in a lot of ways.
1: I agree. That's what I love about this podcast. We can use yeah. it as a, a door to really talk about anything that mm-hmm. comes up. I want to ask each of you, does America have a national food identity? Cassie, you touched on the early days of the Republic when it was probably easier to get buy-in. You know, this is who we're going to be. Anybody who doesn't like it doesn't count as American anyway, so who cares what they think? But in 2022, when we have so much diversity in this country and access to anything we want, does America have a food identity? And if so, what would you say it is?
2: I mean, honestly, I think it is what you said. Uh, the American food identity is the immense diversity of, of food, and that really reflects US history. Um, I mean, from what Cassie started talking about at the beginning, a sort of mix of, of European immigrants and indigenous peoples, and later African American people imported to this country. Those food ways began you know, the, the national food way, if, if we want to talk about it. But even then, it was so regional because it was about what, what could be grown in a certain place or, or what sort of thrived. And since that time, it's only gotten more diverse. Waves and waves of new immigrants over the decades, over the centuries have made American food waste just so heterogeneous. It's a big country and, and we have local food traditions just in every pocket of the country that are just that make it so interesting. So I love when I travel going to new places, new cities and trying the local food, right? Because even as the United States has become a more homogenous nation in a lot of ways, there's still these lingering food traditions that, that help define place. So I like that we have this diverse food history.
0: When I taught food history, I asked my classes at the beginning of the semester, what is the quintessential American mm-hmm. food? And I got a variety of answers from hot dog, hamburger, pizza, ranch dressing, McDonald's, and then uh, a number of different, more ethnic dishes. And it's it's interesting because we are such a diverse nation. We do have the influence of so many different people, so many different groups. That And some foods that we think of as quintessentially American are not actually. So like the hot dog and hamburger were both invented by German immigrants to America. So, you know, in focusing on early American history, I might say the pancake is uh the most american of foods because it has survived and because it does have that early tradition and because in a lot of ways it reflects in some ways our fast eating and our focus on efficiency not slow eating <laughs> there's i think there's room for both you know we have a, a culture of fast food and DoorDash and vending machines but we also do have slow cooking traditions and efforts to get back to sort of a farm to table but if I were pushed to pick one, I would say the pancake in all of its various forms.
1: That is a solid answer because just about every culture has some version of a pancake. You you sold me on it. Okay, our time is short. So I wanna know from each of you and Julie, I'll start with you. Why are you passionate about this subject matter?
2: I have always liked eating. (laughs) When I was three years old, I I ate my first artichoke. My parents had it on like a VHS tape, a video of it, and I was just like ravenously eating this artichoke as a three-year-old. And I think ever since that time, I've loved eating. I don't know. It's I grew up in a house. My mother was from um, from the South, from Kentucky mostly. She was a very sort of you know Southern. Had a lot of sort of Southern cooking. My dad just loved cooking. He really got into it, and so I grew up in a house that, that liked preparing food and cooking food and thinking about food and so that i think is is, is some of it um but as I've gotten older and kind of thinking, you know, as I became a historian, thinking really about the politics of food, it's it's motivated me to, you know, where does our food come from? What is the history of where that food comes from and why? Um, what are some of the problems with our food ways? What are some of the, you know, ethics involved, the the politics involved? And so I just think there's there's so much swirling around it that fascinates me from that perspective as well. But then at the end of the day, after I've thought about all that from an academic perspective, I like to come home and, and uh, you know, make handmade pasta and and just enjoy the carbs. So.
1: Mmm, <laughs> enjoy the carbs. That's like yeah. the motto of my life. That's my personal <laughs> mission statement. And then Cassie, what about you? Why are you so passionate about food history?
0: I think there's really a professional and personal side. The historian in me, kind of like what Julia was saying, wants to know the why and where did this tradition come from and how do our eating habits reflect our, our values in society? You know, I think it's important to be really thoughtful about that. But there's also just that, you know, that enjoyment of food and some of the ways that it can enrich our lives, like not even in just the material or physical way. And I think I I gained a real appreciation of food probably in the last 10, 20 years where I would start to get together with groups of friends and we would take a long time just making dinners together. And I realized it was more fun than, than necessarily going out or ordering in. And each person contributed something, and it was just a really valuable time for me. And I realized that we were, we were connecting over preparing and eating and sharing food in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. I mean, both of my parents actually cooked a lot, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, we didn't have a, a ton of processed food, and that's something that I still really value. But it wasn't until I think a little bit later that I thought about it more, like what it means and so that definitely has sparked a passion.
1: Well, I want to thank you both so much. This has been so fascinating. We've covered a couple hundred years of food history in half an hour. <laughs> I don't know anywhere <laughs> else where you could do that. And I know there's so much more we didn't get to. Thank you both so much. I just really enjoyed
0: this conversation. Thank you I for having here. us. This was a lot of fun.
1: Doctors Julia Irwin and Cassie Yakafasi teach history at the University of South Florida. And if you want more food history, there's plenty of it on our website including what Florida's early settlers ate for holiday meals and how Florida became the birthplace of fusion cuisine. Who knew? Just type the word history into the search box on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. This week, we had help from Chandler Balcom and Mark Hayes. Big thanks to Hannah Abdel-Majid, our intern and social media maven, who is leaving us after this week. Thank you so much, and we wish you the best. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2022.